0: Good afternoon. It's Monday, the eighteenth of January, twenty twenty-one. Just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joining to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. This is a just-in-time delivery, my dear. Very much. So <laughs>
1: So we're just going to get straight on. Lots to get through uh, again today, and well, well, we'll start with the mail today because their headline is Germany to repurpose refugee camps to detain people who repeatedly flout COVID rules by going out when they should be quarantining. Uh, So they're saying that uh, the eastern state of Saxony has confirmed plans to hold quarantine flouters in a fenced-off section of a refugee camp set to be built next week. Uh, The regional state claimed that the facility will only be used for people who have repeatedly flouted lockdown rules around self-isolation. Uh, and they're saying that uh, in Brandenburg, authorities will detain a section of refuge, of a refugee section. Uh, I'm not sure who wrote this. It, it's not really English in many cases. Maybe it's uh, been through a pretty poor uh, Google magic. Translate yes, yeah. or something like that. Uh, legal experts to- told DeVelt that state governments have powers to detain people for breaching quarantine rules under Disease Protection Act. Uh, passed by the German Bundestag last March and renewed in November. So uh, let me welcome David Scott to the programme and say, uh, if this is being done under the Disease Protection Act, which was passed last March, renewed in November, uh, that was probably a very similar enabling act, if I can use that term, uh, to the uh, UK's Coronavirus Act. Uh, And uh, well, Germany has a bit of history in this regard.
2: It does indeed, and the optics of the Germans locking people up in camps because of um, their opinions—it's um, not good. Because after all, it does have very severe uh, historical um, connotations. And people are starting to see the similarities here. I was sent another mail article, um, which was highlighting um, a, a, a historical research of a horrendous photograph of uh, a woman and child, a Jewish woman and child, being shot uh, on the edge of a pit in the Eastern Front by German soldiers during the Second World War and the research had found out the backstory and who this woman and child were and and and, and was, was describing their lives up until up until their murder. Um, and the person who sent me this was seeing a continuity between the, the way people are being treated in supermarkets when they don't wear mass, the way the state is taking over every aspect of, of our lives and the way that the population has been mobilised uh, and weaponized to stamp out dissent with uh, the events of the Second World War. It's obviously different in, in, in severity, but the, the basic mindset, the basic failing uh, of, 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 of civilization is essentially the same. And uh, the, this correspondent was uh, was highlighting this to me. Was very disturbed by the the similarities.
1: Um, well, just uh, keep in mind what David's just said there with respect to the state taking over our lives as we move through this. Uh, we'll be glad to report, uh, won't we, uh, that one thousand or around a thousand people over the age of eighty have now been vaccinated at Salisbury Cathedral. Uh, this happened over the weekend. Uh, the cathedral, of course, uh, famous cathedral is being used for this. You'd be glad to know, Brian, that they all were listening to organ music while this was going on, which is a bit confusing because I understand that uh, church organs had mostly been taped off and weren't allowed to be used during this, uh, this particular uh, so-called pandemic, but uh, nonetheless for this purpose, uh, apparently the rules could be broken
0: i'm short of words really to describe this stuff mike i think that picture for me is utterly vile and um uh, on the other hand it doesn't surprise me that we've now got the church particularly the church of england fully engaged with the government's uh, program so spirituality pushed out the door just do as the government says is the line coming from our established churches
1: yes now on friday uh, we reported this the fact that uh, the Uh, the uh, COVID vaccine in uh, Norway had been uh, discovered to have killed 23 people so far, at least that seems to be the case. Uh, This was the uh, Norwegian uh, Health Ministry, uh, or the equivalent of the MHRA rather, reporting the side effects after coronavirus uh, vaccine as of the uh, 14th of January 2021. Uh, Now, they were saying that 13 of those, 23 had been assessed at that point, but still 23 deaths associated with it. Uh, Pfizer has released uh, a statement on this. uh, So let's bring you up to date with that. Norwegian authorities have prioritized the immunization of residents in nursing homes, most of whom are very elderly with underlying medical conditions and some which are terminally ill. Uh, The number of incidents so far is not alarming and in line with expectations. All reported deaths will be thoroughly evaluated by the Norwegian authorities to determine if these incidents are related to the vaccine. Um, So, David, uh, in line with expectations, uh, what do you think about that?
2: Well, there's a a chilling phrase, people are dying in line with expectations. Um, What exactly was the, we tried to get this out of the Scottish Government, but uh, they they would not answer. What was the predicted level of of severe adverse reactions? Uh, We we will recall that... uh, they, they were, they were looking. In fact, they, they let a contract for an entirely new AI system to monitor the adverse reactions because the legacy system simply weren't good enough. And when we asked, "Well, how many adverse reactions are you expecting?", uh, there was silence.
1: Um, and indeed, there has been silence over this Norwegian incident, mostly in the UK, but not in Ireland, because here is the uh, health service executive equivalent of uh, the uh, of NHS Public Health England sort of organisation. Uh, HSE or, uh, issues new advice on COVID-19 vaccine for very frail elderly who have serious disease after a number of deaths in Norway. This is the Independent in Ireland, and they're saying that health staff are administering the COVID-19 vaccine in long-term care settings across the country, being told it's not appropriate to give it to residents whose duration of life may be shorter than the length of time it would take for the job to work. Uh, the advice is being issued uh, through the HSE because of the deaths in Norway. Uh, and so on. Well, the one uh, UK newspaper that I've seen that did cover this, to, to, sort of, uh, was the Express. I haven't seen it anywhere else in any great detail. Uh, Norway urgently changes COVID vaccine guidance after 23 die, de- sorry, 23 die in days following Pfizer jab. Uh, but what I find fascinating about this article, which is pretty devoid of any detail and pretty poor English used in it as well, so uh, again. Uh, clearly written in five seconds, Uh, but the comments at the end, uh, the ones which have been selected by the editors, so they're all editors pick comments, and what have we got here? Considering how many older people being vaccinated, I would expect some deaths, says Brian Green Tony, uh, and then Steve Jones too says, uh, most of whom are very elderly with underlying health medical conditions and some which are terminally ill has anyone died who has no underlying medical condition? So you can see what they're doing there. Uh, They're trying to uh, reflect back the uh, questioning of uh, the number of people being uh, named as having died from COVID-19 and the whole underlying medical condition issue uh, back onto this. And then Paul Seston here saying, uh, the very best people in this field have no idea how to beat this pandemic, but they're trying. The uneducated folk seem to have all the answers. So I'm going to label those as three 77 Brigade uh, comments, uh, all selected by the Express. Uh, But The Guardian, not really wanting to comment on this with a UK perspective, has decided to talk about Australia. Health Minister reassures Australians over vaccine rollout after Norway adverse reactions report. Uh, And uh, Greg Hunt said on Sunday, there was no change to the government's vaccine rollout plans And safety is Australia's number one priority. Uh, He said that Australians should have confidence that we are being absolutely thorough and have a cautious but highly focused medical regulator who is taking into account all of the evidence from around the world. But there is no evidence to take into account. That's another question. Uh, He said he had spoken to uh, various people on Sunday morning and asked to seek uh, additional information from both Pfizer and the Norwegian uh, regulators. Uh, We don't know yet whether this is a function simply of age and people who are older and sadly facing the natural loss of their life, or whether there's any causation. So this all seems a little bit hypocritical because when it comes to people that are dying from COVID, uh, it doesn't matter what age they are, it doesn't matter whether they are coming to the end of their lives anyway, we've got to lock down the world and destroy economies and so on. But when it comes to the vaccine, that's all right because they might be of a certain age and would have died anyway. There are double standards being applied here. Uh, And then uh, let's uh, move on to this uh, because this is now a report from Germany in German. Let's do a quick translate of that. Uh, Institute examines 10 deaths after vaccination. So several people have died, 10 people have died so far after being vaccinated against coronavirus. And the Paul uh, Ehrlich Institute is now investigating the cause of death. So Uh, That's where we are with respect to vaccines at the moment. Well, that's a very good point you've made, Mike, that it's
0: absolutely clear, isn't it? When it's COVID deaths, we've got to talk about absolutely everybody and anybody who's maybe um, asymptomatic is a COVID problem. Um, But when it comes to the vaccine side, well, actually, I was going to say they're just described as incidents. Mm. Deaths have just become incidents, nothing really to bother
1: about. Um, But, uh, David, uh, the headline uh, from the Lancashire, is that the Lancashire Post? Uh, Preston councillor rushed to hospital with severe COVID vaccine side effects.
2: Yes, I I think this is the first time we've covered uh, uh, an article in the Lancashire Post. Um, Speaking to the Post, City Councillor Parvaktar uh, has described how he was left fearing for his life after being admitted to Royal Preston Hospital within hours of the job. 42-year-old counsellor, and you'll see a photograph in a minute, he looks quite fit and healthy, uh, from Plumpton, uh, who works full-time for the NHS, spent 24 hours in emergency care last week. So this is a very severe adverse reaction, it's one that's been reported. Um, And uh, the uh, gentleman concerned uh, was quoted directly describing his symptoms. He said, um, but the flu-like snuffles and muscle ache kicked in, followed by horrendous fever. When I closed my eyes to, to lay down, I felt like the top of my scalp was melting and sliding down my face. It was horrible. So this is the reaction he's describing. And um, given the fact he works for the NHS, how did he, how did he process that experience? What did, he, what did he say to us all about how we should view the vaccine? Well, he said, I, I'm all sorted now. And some older, much frailer family members have had their jabs without any side effects everyone definitely needs to get their vaccination as soon as, as it is offered to them so we can start to get some control on the disease. Um, and he continued, this is our shot, I'm not sure if the pun was intended, this is our shot to get back to some semblance of normality. Getting vaccinated will help protect us and our loved ones. So he's just, despite going through an, a, a very severe reaction where he was fearing that he would die because of the vaccine, He's, he's gone straight back, flipped straight back to right on government propaganda. Now, his job requires him to say this, um, and this is why that people, if they, if they feel they cannot say the truth because their jobs depend on it, need to stop lying. Just say nothing if you can't speak truthfully. He's yeah. completely igno- ignored his own experience, and he's pushing out the government propaganda as though nothing had happened.
0: David, I find that report just extraordinary. If you had been that ill, if you'd been in um, um, essentially A&E for 24 hours, emergency care, you would come out a very scared person. How could you possibly be... Um, recommending that your frail relatives then have the same jab there's some there's a dissonance here which needs some real investigation I don't even think this is the pressure of his job there is something wrong about this report in my opinion
1: Um, but let's move on Uh, David uh, who's exempt from wearing masks I'm scared of abuse for not wearing one
2: so this is the BBC doing a fine piece of psychological attack on the British public in the way that the one with the BBC can. This is, this is a, a piece of work. So this is a, a, a young lady, uh, Georgina, who's terrified about being confronted for not wearing a face covering. Right, now she describes how wearing a face covering affects her. She says, my heart races, I get really hot and start sweating, I start shaking all the noise in the shop seems to get louder and the lights seem to get brighter, right? So she, she's getting a, a, a very unpleasant um, uh, reaction to wearing a mask, right? So this is, not, this is not minor. So she continues, I have a few sensory problems. It is stressful enough uh, going into a shop when you have autism. with the background music, the beeps of the till, customer an- announcements, people talking. Um, she's, she's, it says she's glad that shops here, we, here, the BBC starts uh, editorialising. She's glad that shops are clamping down on the non-mask wearers, but worries about being mixed up with people who are determined to break the rules and lie about being exempt. So this isn't a sympathy piece for for people who are who are getting hassled in shops. No, this is a masked, This is a masked attack um, on on the. the those people who the BBC have decided are lying about being exempt. Um, How I, I, the BBC know this is is not clear.
1: Uh, you yeah, well, indeed. But of course, that what is the effect of that statement going to be? Uh, you know, let's assume there are some people that are lying about being exempt. Those are relatively few. The, every, by far and away, the most people that are contacting us are people that are or have a reason to yeah. be exempt and are absolutely suffering as a result of the the. Uh, effect that the, that, the, that the security guards and so on are having on them. So what that, what that sentence does is, is so doubt in people's minds that actually somebody who's saying they're
2: exempt is a liar. Exactly so. And it gets worse. And she carries on, I don't carry my diagnosis letter and assessment scores around with me. And people often say, you don't look disabled. So there's a suggestion that maybe she should carry this information. I, without it, it's not been stated that she, she doesn't need to carry this. There's, these people have no right to ask her. The BBC are not saying that. Uh, Georgina's seen videos online of people without masks being abused by others and says the possibility of that happening to her is worse than having to wear a mask. I know I wouldn't be able to stand up for myself. <sighs> now, this is, this is very interesting because, of, of course, the videos that we've seen are people going into shops and successfully arguing with the mask Nazis and security guards and standing up for their rights and, the, and the, the supermarkets having to back down? The BBC knows we've seen these videos and they're trying to say, well, there's lots of other videos where people have being abused by the public. They're also encouraging the public to abuse people who are not wearing a mask. And they're also saying, oh, I know I wouldn't be able to stand up for myself. So they're saying, be afraid you won't be able to cope with this. It. It's very, very dark stuff. Um, and, it, and it gets worse again. And she continues, unlike the, uh, the Disability Blue Badge Scheme, you don't have to prove you're exempt from face coverings. There's no legal requirement to carry an exemption card, says the BBC. So they now, they now admit this. And, but they then immediately um, walk that back. So they, so they say, until there's something more official. So we need something more official because we can't trust the public. uh, Georgina will carry on wearing one despite the distress it causes. So she's so frightened, and the BBC are endorsing this as the right approach, she's so frightened she's going to wear a mask anyway until there's an official government scheme so she can prove that she's exempt. And then the quota. If I was confronted, I'd probably be awake all night replaying the situation in my head and what I should have said or done differently if i went through a situation like this my anxiety would be so high that i'd be scared to leave the house yep so they're, that's the bbc they they they're, they're promoting fear and they're promoting essentially vigilanteism. Uh, i think that's a, an appalling
0: i just add to that, David. Of course, that reporter, Kirsty Grant, is actually BBC Newsbeat. So that article is specifically targeted for children and young people, which makes it even more despicable.
1: Okay, now, uh, we have uh, seen a load of headlines like this over the last several months. COVID-19, second wave spreads, new virus strain in South Africa, hits younger people hard, hits younger people hard. Uh, and here's another example COVID-19 patients are younger and sicker than in the first wave uh, Here's another one. This is a son young people at more risk of coronavirus second wave as it could be very different from the first uh, and here's the BBC from uh, November last year, COVID children more likely to be infected in second wave. Well, we've seen headlines like this for week after week after week in the last few months. Uh, I thought it's time to just have a look at some of the numbers and thank you very much to the uh, viewer who uh, give me a little bit of help with this. Uh, so let's have a look at those numbers. So if we look at April as an example, being the peak, uh, the to- total number of deaths attributed to COVID-19 in April Uh, was 26,683 and as you can see 54 of those were for under 30s. Uh, 124 were for people in their 30s, 420 for people in their 40s. Um, We get to December and the total of deaths attributed to COVID-19 in December is 14,633, 17 for people under 30. So that's uh, 0.2% in April and 0.1% in December. So again, the headlines, uh, absolutely uh, the lie of the headlines proven through the numbers, uh, and that's absolutely clear. Yeah, propaganda at its uh, worst. Well, one
0: of the things we've been paying attention to is the increasing power of supermarkets because, of course, most people shop at a supermarket. So at some stage, many people shop at supermarkets for food all the time. But we're now seeing the supermarkets gain more and more power simply to enforce government policy. And probably the gold medal goes to Asda here. And Thank you very much for the person that alerted us to the email which uh, Asda Uh, CEO, Roger Burnley, has been sending out to customers. Let's have a look at what he had to say. We are incredibly proud to announce that Asda has become the first supermarket to support the NHS vaccination programme using in-store pharmacies to promote provide covid jabs so you go to the church or you can go to asda mike have you at least you've got a choice the first install vaccination center opens in one of our birmingham stores later this month and qualified asda pharmacy colleagues will administer the vaccine to priority groups identified by the nhs how can they be qualified already mike What do they actually know about this vaccine? Mm. I would be very interested to know. The site is the first Asda pharmacy to be approved to support the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine program. And we're continuing to work with Public Health England and NHS England to assess other sites that could support this program. So Roger Burnley, not just about food, he's about making sure that you adhere to the government's program and he's gonna mix provision of food with getting the vaccine. We've also offered NHS England the full use of our 238 in pharmacies and qualified pharmacists to support the rollout of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine program which has just begun. And we stand ready to support authorities As needed in scotland northern ireland and wales so the job of asda is to support the authorities it's not to provide you with a shopping experience following last week's national lockdown we strengthened the existing measures in stores to protect customers and colleagues which included extending the period of our quote covid safety marshals i believe david you would call that a mask nazi Uh, But they're going to be on duty at the front of every store from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. so that they've got the maximum opportunity of frightening people, presumably. We've continued to strongly encourage customers to wear face coverings. So Roger Burnley's got no interest in young girls, as we've just shown, who suffer as a result of face masks. We're going to strongly encourage customers to wear face coverings in our stores since it became a legal requirement to do so last July. Um, we provided masks free of charge to any customers who've got to bring their own. And he goes on because there's more, we've also reviewed store occupancy levels to help maintain social distancing. Customers can play their part too by shopping alone where possible and using Scan and Go Technology to speed up their shopping trip. Apologies about the extra E. Um, so what risk assessment do we think Mr. Burnley has covered out? into masks, or indeed social distancing? And I think we'd have to say, I suspect the answer is none. None. None.
1: Um, now, uh, statistics, as we have been making the point from the beginning, do show a picture. Uh, and of course, we are being constantly told about the number of people that have sadly passed away uh, in the, in 2020. Uh, and it's and quite a number of them now being attributed to COVID-19. The question is, uh, is the death rate that we're experiencing at the moment unusual? Is it better or is it worse than things we've seen in the death rates that we've seen in the past in, in years in this country? And is the uh, policy of the government appropriate as a result? Um, well, of course, the number that we need to be looking at to, to sort of make that judgment isn't the headline number in terms of people who have died. Because, of course, demographics have changed, population numbers have changed, And so as we highlighted last week uh, on the programme, when we see a headline from the BBC that says, uh, you know, excess mortality is its worst since the Second World War, then we can show that that's fake news. So let's we did that last week. Uh, We'll do that in a slightly different way. Now, here is the uh, age standardised mortality rate. Uh, Now, uh, ASMRs account for changes in population size and age structure. So we've had an ageing population. The population has increased significantly significantly. Um, and uh, so I thought it was worthwhile putting this this graphic on screen just to show how that has changed. The Office for National Statistics provides this data from 1971. Uh, and I think what we can see, first of all, is that there has been a significant downward trend in terms of overall mortality uh, since 1971, the last 50 years or so. Uh, but what we can also see is that, for example, if we look, I think that's 1978. uh 1981 or so. There's four or five places along that line where we see that the you know there's been a setback to the trend, uh, which isn't dissimilar to the setback that we've seen in 2020. Uh, and no matter what you think is the reason for that setback, our argument has been from fairly early on that the reason for that setback in mortality is because of uh, government policy rather than the so-called pandemic itself. Um, but the, the other key, the reason that I've put the year 2000, highlighted the year 2000 and the year 2008 there is because obviously the uh, level of mortality that we're seeing in 20 or we saw in 2020 is below all those years between 2000 and 2008, uh, making 2020 the ninth worst year uh, since the turn of the century, but significantly better than every year since 19. Uh, 19- 71, right up until 2009. So, David, uh, you saw that over the over the weekend. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on it.
2: A, a fascinating graph. Um, it shows, without fear of contradiction, that the level of mortality in the United Kingdom in 2020 was, for want of a better word, normal. Um, there was nothing unusual about it. Where's the pandemic? Where's the huge spike? It just it just doesn't exist, so we're being lied to. It's also quite interesting that the long-term improvement in in uh, health um, and longevity seems to have stopped in about two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, and it's actually flatlined since then. So there's a, there's some interesting in, information coming out of the long-term trends as well. But in terms of twenty twenty, it really puts it in context. That's the level. Of, of all-cause mortality we've had. You know, very minor, a small uptick, nothing unusual, and that's before you get into what's actually causing the uptick. And we're talking about levels of mortality which are much better than the early part of this century. So why are we closing the entire economy down? Why are we destroying our, our, our nation? Why are we locking people in their homes? Where's the reason?
1: Uh, This is the question we've been asking from the beginning and uh, no satisfactory answer uh, as yet. Where does that Uh, take us? Well, it takes us that apparently we might be released from uh, lockdown.
0: So we've chosen this Daily Mail headline here. Um, Lots of um, uh, psychological manipulation just in this image because uh, the headline in words is lockdown lifts in March which is not actually what the article says, Uh, but then the whole of the image sequence is that of course this is only gonna happen if everybody is a good little person and takes the vaccine. So the top image uh, left has got Nadim, so uh, Zahawi who's the vaccine minister and he's promoting not only vaccines but the fact you will get a second uh, dose of vaccine then we have got the big image of course of somebody receiving it and then on the right we've got a map showing that the UK is going to have up to 2,700 special centres to roll out the vaccines. So this is the uh, main headline. Lockdown is set to be gradually lifted from March when all over 70s are vaccinated. Five million more will be offered a jab from today as minister guarantees second doses within 12 weeks. Amid warnings, areas face postcode lottery for access. So no concerns over damage to people, deaths from the virus, but we've twisted it now. There's concern that you might not be able to get one.
1: And just for the avoidance of doubt, what they mean by gradually lifted, uh, Dominic Raab over the weekend was saying uh, we will move back to the tier system that we saw a few weeks ago uh, before this latest lockdown. Um, and so they'll keep that going right the way through the summer, I'm quite sure.
0: Well, we are seeing other reports, Mike, which is t- talking about the autumn. And if we're talking about the autumn for a lift, we're going to go straight back into the new cycle of, of uh, winter 2021 problems. So uh, I think what we're seeing at the moment is we're not going to come out of this. I'm just going to put um, Vaccine Minister uh, Nadim uh, Zahawi on screen there um i don't know what it is about this man but i don't trust him there's something about him uh, i've just put that up with the question should the public trust this man seems to me all he's doing is taking the advice coming straight out the pharmaceutical companies and then telling us that we should take their product.
1: It's maybe something to do with the fact he looks like Anton LaVey, but anyway, that...
0: <laughs> A little bit about that, but it is his his—it is his eyes. I look into those eyes and I'm not thinking this man has got our best interests at heart. Perhaps I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, well, look, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us there. We hope you'll join. Uh, and uh, also, if you'd like to support us, we do need your help to spread the information. We are on Twitter for for the moment, on Facebook for the moment, on YouTube for the moment, also on BitChute and DLive uh, and we're streaming out regularly on DLive.tv now as well. We we also uh, thank people who've given us uh, donations
0: and a particular thank you to Mary who I've made contact with but didn't manage to speak to uh, direct but uh, very generous donation. So thank you you everybody who's helping in that way.
1: Absolutely. Now, uh, Reuters then, uh, just uh, before the weekend, was pushing this out uh, with a nice uh, little video report. Uh, Temporary morgues have been set up in the UK as hospitals run out of space due to surge in COVID-19 deaths. Uh, And this is being presented as something new. Uh, So on that basis, uh, we're going to call this fake news. Um, Because, of course, there's nothing new about it whatsoever. This was done back in April. Uh, Now, uh, if uh, you want to know a little bit more about this, have a look at this article uh, on the UK Column website entitled Exercise Cygnus, UK Government Exercise Justifies COVID-19 Lockdown. It's worthwhile going back to to some of the articles that were written uh, close to the beginning of this whole thing. So this was from April 2020 by Robin Kaiser. Fantastic article. Uh, And one of the points that she is making uh, is that between 2010 and 2017, there were 70,000 fewer intensive care beds in the UK. So there's been a systematic uh, reduction Reduction, of uh, intensive care capability in this country. Uh, And despite that, the government has known uh, that because we're going to show you they've been practicing for this kind of thing for quite a number of years, they haven't done anything about it. So what was exercise sickness? Uh, Let's have a look. Following the publication of the 2011 preparedness paper, uh, the number of ICU beds continued to fall. Then five years later, the government held an unusual and secretive event called Exercise Cygnus. It involved all government departments, all local authorities and the NHS right across the UK. Its report has not been published for, quote, national security reasons uh, and so as not to frighten the public. However, according to those with first-hand knowledge of the operation, Cygnus Script contained a scenario of a patent lack of capacity of ICU beds and personal protective equipment. Uh, Based on its given hypothesis, uh, it predicted that thousands more critical care beds would be required. Large parts of the NHS would need to be switched off to redeploy staff. Frail patients would would be denied care and mortuaries would be overwhelmed. Uh, And this is uh, quite spectacular that the uh, hypothesis proposed by Exercise Cygnus seems to be exactly the narrative of the British government, that there aren't enough uh, ICU beds, that uh, NHS has to be switched off to uh, redeploy staff for frontline COVID support, uh, that frail patients would be denied care. That was what drove most of the excess mortality in April and May. Uh, And mortuaries would be overwhelmed. Well, they weren't and they aren't but uh, that was, that's the narrative that's being uh, certainly given to us by Reuters once again, a couple of days ago. And also in the uh, article is this image uh, showing the temporary mortuary set up in Ernstall Fort in Plymouth, uh, local to us. Uh, but that was, of course, was back in April. And just to confirm that that actually did happen, here is uh, the section from the, British, from the Plymouth uh, uh, Council website. Plymouth.gov.uk, from the 27th of March, 2020, setting up temporary mortuary facility uh, at uh, Agaton Fort in Earnsettle, uh, which they acquired on a temporary basis. They hope that they never were going to use it. They never did use it. Uh, they won't use it uh, because the, I'm sorry to put it in this ter- these terms, but the bodies just aren't there.
0: And that's because the facts around COVID are not correct. So let's take it a step further and have a look at... Uh, Um, the essentially lockdown or stay at home, we'll call it, because uh, thank you to viewers of UK column who pointed out to us this uh, report, which we think is worth showing. This is exactly the sort of um, professional, informed medical specialist report that the mainstream media doesn't want to talk about at all. So the title is Assessing Mandatory Stay-at-Home business closure effects on the spread of COVID-19. Let's uh, blow this up a bit. So this is the uh, document and um, you can find it because we're going to encourage our viewers and readers to go and look at this material themselves. You can go to the European Journal of Clinical Investigation and find the paper and I've put the address for that on the right-hand side of the screen, but we'll give you the conclusions in simple terms. It said, while small benefits cannot be excluded, we do not find significant benefits on case growth of more restrictive non-pharmaceutical interventions. Similar reductions in case growth may be achievable with less Restrictive interventions, and the second part, we do not question the role of all public health interventions or of coordinated communications about the epidemic, but we fail to find any additional benefit of stay-at-home orders and business closures. So we've got the whole of UK uh, economy effectively destroyed. I think we're sort of somewhere between twenty-five and thirty percent of the UK economy destroyed, and yet when. Uh, qualified people come up and make comment. Uh, The BBC and the rest of the UK, mainstream media, doesn't want to discuss it. Let's have a look at the quality of the people who spoke out. They're qualified in so many different areas that I can't get it all on screen, but I've included medicine, disease prevention, population health, epidemiology, biomedical data science, metadata research, econometrics, and a whole host more. Uh, these are the main uh, people who wrote that paper. Um, Erin Ben David. Uh, the, the, they are mainly from Stanford University, but they also are, are involved with me- many other bodies. Uh, we've got Christopher O, research data scientist at Stanford University. Uh, we've got John uh, Ioannidis, uh, professor of medicine, epidemiology, and population health, and, and a whole range of other things. Um, we've got this gentleman here. Uh, so these are fully qualified people. But of course, none of these voices appear on mainstream news at all. This is simply filtered out because it doesn't fit the government narrative. And it would have us questioning why we're locked up in our homes. And for many people, they're unable to go to work.
1: Yes, but good news, Brian, uh, care for the vulnerable Stasi Britain is being brought in uh, in the name of Care for the Vulnerable. It's all about looking after people, making sure that everybody's okay. So uh, a satellite enabled app for your phone called Careview has been launched. And this is all about tackling social isolation and loneliness in urban areas by enlisting the help of an army of professional volunteers across the city, including police, postal workers, charity workers uh, who register on the app And when they see signs that people might be experiencing social isolation, uh, they click on the app and the location that they were passing is recorded uh, via satellite, apparently. Uh, And this is uh, because today, if anybody didn't know, being Monday the 18th of January, this is Blue Monday. We had a blue Christmas, but this is Blue Monday. Uh, And this is said to be the most depressing day of the year with post-Christmas blues and cold, dark nights. So uh, anyway, this is Blue Monday. Uh, and so people out in a community can tap the app when they spot signs that a householder might be struggling, like rubbish dumped in the garden or curtains that always remain shut. Uh, through satellite technology, this app tap uh, generates a heat spot on a web-based map of the city. And there are multiple app taps. Uh, this creates heat maps, pinpointing streets and homes where people might welcome assistance of some kind. Now, this is, of course, David, what this is all about is making sure that uh, it's a state which intervenes. It discourages uh, the, the, any development of sort of community uh, and instead uh, creates a situation where you just uh, interface with the app. Don't worry about interfacing with the person that you might be concerned about at all, uh, because of course we have to socially distance, wear masks and all that kind of stuff. So we can't do that anymore. Um, and uh, so we just tap on an app and then the state will intervene.
2: Yes, uh, the state is coming in to so many aspects of our lives to remove um, our normal interactions, uh, attacking the family, attacking your communities. But on a positive note, Mike, this is uh, going to be excellent for handing out um, uh, social um, credit points.
1: Uh, Well, indeed. But it's not all bad news, is it? Because uh, more and more graffiti appearing.
2: This is from Portobello Beach, and isn't it good? It's scrawled in, the, in, the, in chalk in the, side of, in the side of a waste paper bin, and it says, enough of this nonsense. Fear is the currency of control. Wake up. And whoever out there wrote that in the side of the bin, uh, that's, that's a beautiful statement. Thank you very much. <laughs>
1: Yes, now, David, you are, of course, uh, Northern Exposure, so let's uh, expose some normal Northern uh, nonsense. Uh, and first of all, Alex Salmond and uh, Nicholas Sturgeon.
2: Well, here we've got Alex Salmond in the role of Brutus and Nicola Sturgeon as Caesar. Now, I'll, I'll let you decide later on whether those are actually the right way around or not. Um, this, this is a story that's been bubbling under for some time, that hasn't made the column um, simply because lack of time. And there's so much other things that are more important happening. But I think now's the time. And I went to the mainstream media to try and get uh, a handle on exactly, you know, to try and explain what's happening. And it was quite disappointing. I'll take you quickly through a few mainstream stories that give some indication of at least the surface. Here we go, BBC News. Salmond accuses Sturgeon of misleading Parliament. So that's a headline and that's, that's a relevant mm. piece of the story. Um, he said that, that statements that Sturgeon made to, uh, to the Parliament were simply untrue. Um, uh, Mr Salmon's statement read, The pre-arranged meeting in the Scottish Parliament on the 29th of March 2018 was forgotten um, by Nicola Sturgeon in her um, statements to the, to the Parliament. It uh, um, was forgotten about because acknowledging it would have rendered ridiculous the claim made by the First Minister in Parliament, um, that it uh, had been believed at the meeting on the 2nd of April was an SNP party business and was thus held at her private residence. So there's been meetings in the background at Nicola Sturgeon's home. She's been making statements about that it was party business, it was nothing to do with the government. So that's why there was no records and that's why there was no minutes taken. Um, and then, uh, and sorry, sorry, David, this, this, is,
1: this is all about Alex Salmon's court case and the allegations of sexual impropriety. Is that right?
2: It's to do with the case against Alex Salmond, um, or the plot against Alex Salmond. we'll, we'll come to that. But it's the, the the background is allegations of sexual misconduct were made against Alex Salmond via a, an in-house Scottish government complaints procedure by civil servants, and uh, there was then a, a process um, during which Alex Salmond was essentially convicted. Alex Salmond got took that to judicial review. The, ju- the judicial review lasted less than a day before the government case fell apart and and Mr Salmon walked out vindicated. And uh, he was then um, arrested by Police Scotland and charged with 14 counts, uh, ranging from minor assaults on women to attempted rape. Um, And when this went to trial uh, in front of a jury, uh, the jury decided uh, to acquit him on all counts, not guilty on 13, not proven on 1, and he, he was he was acquitted, and the, the government case again collapsed, but there's much in the background, and it's the background in Nicola Sturgeon's statements to Parliament that are being examined um, here. Um, so the, the Sunday Post uh, r- reports that uh, Nicola Sturgeon's going to be asked to give evidence in person next week, so, she's going to have to go in front of the Parliament inquiry, and her predecessor, the former First Minister of Scotland, has already said that she's lied to Parliament. So, it's an, an interesting situation. Um, STV News uh, reported Salmon accuses Sturgeon of breaching the ministerial code. Um, so, th- this, this would be a resigning matter. If she's been lying to Parliament, she'll have to go. So, if she's ha- she's been having meetings in her house, which had no, um, had had no minutes and no records, and they were on government business. And then she lied to Parliament and said it was party business. Um, she'll have to go. Um, David, if, if uh, David, claim have forgot. There, there,
1: there, seems to be a similarity here between uh, her hosting meetings in uh, in her own house and uh, Hillary Clinton hosting emails on her own server. It's is this. Is there some connection between Clinton and, and, and Nippy that, that perhaps maybe this idea came to her mind?
2: Well, Nicola Sturgeon is a huge fan of Hillary Clinton. has made that clear. It's had a photograph taken. She was very happy about this. So, yes, there, there is a, there's certainly an affinity between the two. Um, so it gets more complicated. So here The Telegraph is, is reporting that Alex Salmon demands the inquiry, gives him immunity against prosecution so he can tell the whole truth. Now, this is no minor thing because what's happened since the Alex Salmon trial, at which he was, he was, he was uh, acquitted on all charges, is that supporters of Alex Salmon have been targeted by the Crown Office for prosecution. Um, Craig Murray um, has, has, is facing uh, contempt of court charges, potential jail time because he wrote a blog um, taking a journalistic approach to the trial. He went along, he, 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 he listened from the public gallery, and he wrote about what he heard. And he's now facing prosecution over that. And a number of Mr., Mr. Salmon's supporters are facing prosecution. So Mr. Salmon being concerned that if he goes in there and tells the truth, particularly if the truth could be construed as identifying the women who made the allegations, that he could find himself in prison because of that, so um, I think this is actually a valid concern uh, from Mr. Salmond, and he's trying to get that resolved. Um, the, the, the Scottish um, uh, Crown Office um, are not really playing ball. The uh, Crown Office believes there's no legal basis for any assurance of immunity from prosecution for Mr. Salmond's appearance before the committee, a very Crown Office way of phrasing it, so they know nothing. Um, now, we've then had a, a series of hearings around, Um the the SNP party leader and husband of Nicola Sturgeon has appeared before Parliament, and so have a number of civil servants. The civil servants got a little help, it would seem. Um, Here we've got the Telegraph reporting, taxpayers foot a £55,000 bill to prepare civil servants for the Salmon Inquiry hearing. Um, Mm -hmm. this This has raised concerns that the civil servants are being coached, which would be, illegal. Um, now, how much preparation does £55,000 buy you? Shall we see? Uh, this next clip is Leslie Evans having benefited from £55,000 of witness prep and going before the uh, Scottish Parliament Committee that's investigating the Salmon Affair um, with, a, with one of her customary smooth and polished performances. Uh, you roll, roll the tape so concerned
1: that it could become a story I, I didn't know um and i was concerned that we would be ready um, in and whatever form that story might blow because the media was uh, very volatile at that point in reporting on everything at the same time i was told that there were other people who were coming forward with concerns not complaints so concerns they were not registered and i'm looking around here to see if the convener is com- comfortable with my I'm
2: in danger of becoming uncomfortable. Okay. Um, can, can I draw it back? and just, uh, Yes. I would... Well, right. <laughs> okay. It, now, the question I have for you gentlemen was how bad was she before £55,000 of witness prep? Well, she
0: didn't get rid, rid of how nervous she clearly was. Um, but, uh,
2: Yeah. And looking to be led by the convener, the convener was a plant, the convener's part of the SNP machine as well, but the conveners had to admit that really it's, it's not good enough. So the, the attempt at covering things up seems to be falling apart because it, 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 the whole situation smells so badly. I would point out very briefly um, that uh, Leslie Evans is uh, well known to, to us via the Robert Green case. And Robert Green and I were in correspondence with her for some time about the uh, Dame Lisa Angelini uh, situation and the money given to Dame Lisa Angelini in order to take out a private civil prosecution uh, against Robert Green. And when we started asking questions, Leslie Evans was leaking information all over the place. It was wonderful. We couldn't believe how uh, naïve she was. Helpful, inadvertently helpful. And eventually she was instructed by a lawyer within the Scottish government not to talk to us anymore. They couldn't trust her to talk to us and write letters and correspond with Robert Green and I. So there's clearly a problem with Leslie Evans um, in terms of, you know, keeping information um, close. Um, And it wasn't solved by £55,000 of witness prep. Now, all of that's fair enough. But it doesn't really get to the heart of the problem. And the mainstream media have not. Now I've got, uh, this next bit's quite wordy, so, so bear with us. But and, and Brian and Mike, please interrupt as we go through this, because it raises important issues. But this is a blog from a gentleman called Robert McAlpine. Now he's a supporter of Scottish independence, a supporter of the SNP. Um, and and one, of the kind of, one of the people who've been trying to provide some intellectual basis for Scottish nationalism and the drive for independence. And Uh, he's deeply troubled by this, and and his blog gets into what it's actually about, which is a lot more than simply uh, Nicola Sturgeon lying to Parliament. Uh, So he writes here, that This time two years ago, I sat in a cafe close to Holyrood in a state of what I can only call shock. The enormity of what I just heard was sinking in. Over the preceding three hours, I've been introduced to all of the gory details of the plot against Alex Salmond. The last two years has at times been... Surreal for me as a result. Uh, And he continues, to explain what I'm going to write, I need to tell you something about my fundamental beliefs. I've worked close to power of government my whole life. I've studied and read widely on power. I'm also a strong believer in social change. So here we've got a gentleman. He's a left-winger. He believes in the big state. He believes in big government. He believes in all the things that the Scottish National Party and the Scottish independence movement is pushing. But even he can't buy this. Even he's troubled by it. He's starting to think, well, this is just, this smells too bad. He continues, everything I've seen has driven me to the same conclusion. Nothing is more important than integrity in public life. That may seem anachronistic to some given modern political culture and not particularly left-wing, telling comment there. Uh, But the positive change I want cannot be built on anything but the firmest foundations. When corruption and misuse of power creeps into those foundations, nothing good can, can be built on them. So here we see people who have got the complete opposite. Um, political viewpoint from, from me, for example, but they're coming to the same conclusions, that the corruption is is too much. The corruption in, in means that this, this, the nation must fail unless we do something about the corruption. So it's encouraging that people from the left are seeing this. So he continues again. Um, uh, in the position of power, you should, you should never create laws or procedures um, for a purpose related to the pursuit of an individual. It represents a gross misuse of power. I'm of a decided. Now, this this refers to uh, the the original case against Alex Salmon, which was handled internally through complaints procedures within the Scottish government. The complaints procedures were changed, were manipulated in order to allow Alex Salmon to be prosecuted. It, it, it's it's a plot against him. That's what he's saying, and I think that's correct. He continues. I'm of a decided view that the same people. Uh, merged this process with the grooming of complainants against the same individual, and on this ruling of the, uh, the and on this uh, ruling of the Court of Session, strongly suggests I am correct. Uh, there are too many details concerning the fundamental improper manner in which the complaints process was subsequently pursued to cover here, but it's all documented and will be in the public domain eventually. This too was a gross abuse of power. It seems at this point that these actions, uh, that those behind these actions, became aware that. that uh, of their risk of exposure as a result of legal arguments, they had become aware of, and I believe this is when the cover-up began. So he's, what he's saying here is there was a plot to get Salmon. People were groomed, uh, witnesses were coached, and and um, ac- accusations were brought forward. A process was changed to enable those accusations, and Salmon was going to be made unelectable. Salmon was going to be taken out of the political scene by. Nicola Sturgeon and those around her and then when that started to come unstuck there was then a cover-up of the political plot against Salmond, that's that's where we are so far. He continues, I believe um, that aware the position was coming into substantial jeopardy the participants in this operation sought to move the focus away from their actions by escalating the manner to a criminal one and reporting information to the police information that they had access to for at least six months previously, but did not act on, and this was done against the wishes of the complainant. At this point, um, we moved into the territory of the kind of behaviour uh, we seldom see in Western Europe. Certainly, seeking to jail someone for political expediency is something I did not believe I would see in Scotland in my lifetime. A pause must be taken here to take on the enormity of this. Now, those of us who supported Robert Greene knew that people would be jailed in Scotland for political expediency, because we we went and visited them inside the jail. So this is not a surprise to some people, but here you've got someone who thought he was living in a world that he could trust, and he's now discovering it's a lot more corrupt than he could possibly imagine. So he continues, as part of this process, I believe that a leak of information, which is probably criminal in nature, was carried out from within the office of the politician, you mean Sturgeon, and on the and on this, the investigation of the Information Commission strongly suggests that I am correct. I do not believe that, this is, uh, that it is feasible that this happened without the authorisation of the politician, although I am aware no hard evidence exists for this. Uh, the affair now moves into two strands. The first involves the continued efforts to cover up what has happened through the repeated failures to produce documents, even in the face of court warrants. Um, and in this, a judge at the court of session concurs on fact, not motive. It appears to be, in the face of it, contempt of court. It also involves what I believe um, appears to be pressure exerted on government lawyers to misrepresent facts, in court, up to the point where, the, where they threatened to resign. Um, these two strands, he continues, these two strands recombine during the resultant criminal trial, um, where there may be a case to be made that the repeated refusal to produce relevant documents represents an attempt to prevent the course of justice and contribute to the imprisonment of a man by withholding evidence relevant to his defense. These are the most serious allegations you could possibly put against government. Uh, perhaps the pinnacle of this for me is the testimony of woman H, by far the most serious of the charges presented, it was attempted rape. Here the prosecution led no properly admissible evidence that she was even in the building where the alleged attempt, attempted rape took place. The defence led multiple pieces of evidence, including reliable eyewitness testimony, that she was never there. The circumstances around this testimony are deeply concerning. It seems to be clear perjury. I cannot comment any more, but for this, this for me sums up the whole, uh, the whole matter. So here you see um, the, 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 the depths of corruption where you have... Uh, a plot to ruin someone's career politically, you have a decision to then move move into a, a, a criminal prosecution when the original plot didn't work in order to dis- distract from um, uh, from from that information, from that 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 failure, that plot be, becoming um, publicly known. And what has saved uh, Mr. Salmon? What saved Mr. Salmon was a jury jury said not guilty. And that saved them. So it shows you how how vitally important juries are. Also, the Crown Office, who is meant to protect people from wrongful prosecution, the Crown Office prosecuted this. The the head of the Crown Office, Mr. Wolfe, surely has to go. This this shows that the Crown Office, which has been described as um, organized crime, the Crown Office is corrupt. The Crown Office must be corrupt for that criminal prosecution to reach court. Um, the, 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 this, the situation of Police Scotland is, is a bit dubious as well, but the, the responsibility mainly falls on the Crown Office for, destru- for deciding to prosecute them. This. this is a criminal prosecution for political ends. This is appalling. So this is, this is the nature of Scottish politics. We hope to get some resolution. We hope to have proper questions asked we hope to see proper information come out but there's a lot of pressure on a lot of people to remain silent or spend some time in jail um whether we'll get to the truth of this i don't know
0: well we'll watch with interest I, i would say most people would look at that and say it was corruption that's the word they would use is that sort of corruption uh here south of the border in england most certainly it is um until it's fully exposed we're not going to deal with it thank you for that report david well we can just move on with a serious subject of mental health many people have been contacting us over the last year talking about the impact of particularly lockdown on people's mental health and also pointing out that the statistics Um, are not there to show the increase, which many people are talking about as a result of lockdown. Now, we're going to thank the BMJ once again for publishing an article, at least starting to lift the lid and ask the right questions. So a lot of detail on on your screen here, but essentially um, it's saying that the number of suicides is increasing. Uh, so it's, uh, here it says, data published by the Office of National Statistics on the 1st of September showed that in 2019, the suicide rate amongst men and boys was 16.9 deaths per 100,000. It goes on to talk about an increase. But it's also got a statement here by the president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, Dr Adrian James, and he says this, it's crucial to identify the people most at risk and to provide tailored care and support to them. The data provides real insight into particular groups in society who are at higher risk. We need more research to understand the reasons behind the increased rates of suicide in teenage girls and young women as well as middle-aged men. Uh, The current pandemic and its impact on people's mental health reinforces the need for substantial and sustained government funding to ensure that there's a mental health system where no one, including those at risk of suicide, is unable to access the care that they need. Now, that was a very pertinent comment from Dr. Adrian James, uh, but it was also this statement by the Office for National Statistics, which is important for the public to see. Uh, what did they say it said that ons published the provisional data for the second quarter of 2020 the peak of the covid19 pandemic it showed there were 6.9 deaths by suicide per hundred thousand people in england this was the lowest of any quarter since 2001 but the ons said that the lower number between april and june <coughs> should be interpreted with caution because the pandemic meant that inquests were delayed so this is a very significant comment it went on given the length of time it takes to hold an inquest around five months we do not currently know the total number of suicides that occurred during the coronavirus uh, pandemic and uh, this appears to be the case many people working in mental health are saying to us how bad things are and and the the uh, the major effect adverse effect on people's mental health but at the moment we haven't got any full statistics showing what's going on and uh, the professionals are saying the government needs to deal with this very quickly will they i'm not convinced mike because i think the moment they do it's going to put more pressure on releasing lockdown
1: Um, Now, the question uh, in many people's lips is why uh, are we having this lockdown? Why are we doing this damage to the economy? Now, at the weekend, uh, the virtual Davos uh, begins. Uh, This is the World Economic Forum's uh, uh, annual Davos event, which, of course, people aren't able to go to uh, in person this year. So they're running it virtually. They're going to host a proper Davos later in the year in Singapore when they believe that people are going to be able to attend in person. Um, but uh, over the last several months and really beginning at at September, October, November time last year, we started seeing things like this. This is Deutsche Bank, Uh, climate neutrality. Are we ready for an honest discussion? Because of course, when you're looking at uh, Davos, the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum, it's all about the new Green Deal. Um, So uh, the European Green Deal labels the goal of climate neutrality by 2050 as a growth strategy where no one is left behind. Uh, says uh, Eric Hyman uh, of the uh, of Deutsche Bank. Uh, well, here is uh, probably the key quote from this particular uh, document. He says a certain degree of eco-dictatorship will be necessary. The impact of the current climate policy on people's everyday lives is still quite abstract and acceptable for many households. Carbon prices will have to rise considerably in order to nudge people to change their behaviour. And of course, this is what the whole COVID thing has been about from the beginning, behavioural change. That's why the behavioural economists and the behavioural psychologists have been so central uh, to the activities of SAGE and the eventual government policy. But around the same time that this Deutsche Bank uh, article was being published, uh, Financial Times uh, ran this headline, UK set to miss goal to cut carbon emissions to net zero by 2050 uh, and uh, they said researchers urge government to engage with public to force behavioral changes and what the what they were writing about in this financial uh, times article uh, was this report here called Behaviour Change, Public Engagement and Net Zero, a report for the Committee on Climate Change. And some of the headlines around this at the time were making the point that unless, this was published in October, 2019, by the way, uh, they were making the point that unless uh, there was significant behaviour change, the uh, goals towards net zero weren't gonna be met. And they were really asking, how could this behaviour change actually be uh, created? How could we, uh, because it's so significant that people just aren't going to move fast enough. But then we look at who wrote this. Uh, and uh, well, let's see Dr. Richard Carmichael from Imperial College London on and uh, this is from the Center of Energy Policy and Technology and the Center for Environmental Policy at Imperial College. Um, and of course, Imperial College uh, expressing their concerns in this uh, report, uh, David, that behavior change needs to take place, that perhaps uh, something needs to happen to encourage that behavioural change. And then a few months later, we find the same Imperial College uh, being one of the key drivers for behaviour change, which has resulted in the complete decimation of the UK economy and, in fact, the global economy. Just a coincidence. I'm sure it's
2: just a remarkable coincidence. Um, but it does, I, I do wonder if. Uh, this time next year we might see, or maybe this time next month, we might see uh, on Twitter hashtag defund Imperial College, as well as defund BBC.
1: I think that's a very good idea.
0: Perhaps we should also just uh, throw in that, of course, if you do your research on Deutsche Bank, I've got a headline in front of me here, Deutsche Bank's five biggest scandals, espionage, money laundering, interest rate scams Germany's biggest lender has a global Reputation for scandal and has paid hefty fines and expensive settlements uh, To make up for its wrongdoings and they're talking 600 over 600 million dollars in fines but the same bank is going to advise us how to run the planet Mm -hmm. good system. Well, let's um, probably end the news with the BBC um, this is an interesting report that was pointed out to me. Um, what is it about racism in education? How truth pages help students fight back? Uh, said the killing of George Floyd was a, Floyd was a catalyst uh, moment for social justice movements across the world. But after the coronavirus pandemic worsened, some of these movements were pushed aside. Well, the BBC, of course, very upset about that. Uh, and as we'll see, they got into the middle of it. One which isn't is an online reckoning orchestrated by students known as Truth Pages, Um, and it says uh, racism exposes. pages became popular across both sides of the Atlantic, primarily on Instagram, allowing black, Asian, and minority ethnic students to share their experiences. The result was a wave of call to action by... Um, some more successful than others, listing the cooperation of institutions in tackling racism and racial inequality. So the BBC sad that the thing had died down with COVID, so they're busy in stoking it up. And then if you follow through the journalist, this is Sam Everett, this is how she went about it. Me and Lorna Aqua are looking to speak to current students who have experienced racism at university, either in the UK or the US. Purely research stages at the moment, but eventually looking for contributors to a BBC video we're doing. If this is you or you know someone, drop us a direct message. So they're seeking out the Discord. Um, Another one here, looking for minority ethnic students or alumni who are willing to record a short voice note Describing as an experience of racism they face. There's not a lot of evidence in a, in a little voice recording, Mike, and I think we've seen how they're going to be used. And this, of course, spreads. And if you follow the email, uh, sorry, the Twitter chains through, you end up with this sort of organisation, uh, which is uh, Why is My Curriculum White, a student led independent decolonisation campaign at Lancaster University. And David, I was going to ask you for a definition of what a decolonization campaign is? I think we know.
2: Well, here's the the thing, right? Um, uh, Take physics for example. The the, the great men in physics um, might include um, uh, James Clerk Maxwell, um, uh, Sir Isaac Newton, um, uh, Leonard Euler, um, and uh, there's a problem. These are all white, Christian, European men. This, this, this is the problem. The physics, is, physics is flawed. Physics is white physics. We need to have African physics. We need to have ethnic physics. We can't have knowledge anymore. We can only have knowledge from a particular ethnic subset. It's um, the introduction of racism, which is a toxic ideology at the best of times, into every aspect of human life and endeavor.
0: Yeah, toxic subject, thank you for that. This is intersectionality, which we keep warning our uh, viewers and, uh, and listeners about, but we followed that Twitter trail and it got even better because uh, here's Lorna Aqua, and then we find something very interesting. Have a look at this one. Right, so let's address the elephant in the room. I've worked for the BBC for the past five plus years and have watched white reporters from the same organisation say the N-word twice, twice in one week. I've written a letter to the BBC on behalf of We Black Journos. So um, the BBC goes investigating racism, Um, comes out that it's in the BBC, but that doesn't appear in the the uh, BBC article, so we're just going to say the BBC is pretty good at, at ramping up the uh, discontent but fails to deal with its own problems. Mm. We're just gonna jump to the end slide there with an eye on the uh, on the time, and...
1: Uh, yes, David, th- uh, you wanted to finish off with, with this one, uh, a skit on a, probably thought- the I- oldest joke that in existence.
2: Yes, I thought it was a wonderful cartoon. So you see the chickens crossing the road at a at a zebra crossing, and the, and and it's being met by by two cops. One seems to be writing out my ticket, and the other one is is tapping his truncheon menacingly. And the cop says to the chicken, "This better be good."
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll end there, David. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to all of our viewers and supporters. Uh, It's really great to get the amount of correspondence we're getting at the moment, largely thanking us for what we're doing. So that's much appreciated.
1: Um, For UK column members, we'll be back on the live stream in about 10 minutes for uh, some news extra.
0: We will see you then. Thanks for joining us. Bye -bye. Bye bye.